How about we start out with a little bit of Shakespeare, the William Shakespeare variety, or as the uh, musical geniuses LFO once said in their hit song, Summer Girls from the late 1990s, Billy Shakespeare. Long walk for an LFO reference, but I promised Gleason that I would at least give it a shot. So William Shakespeare, Hamlet, pretty much the crown jewel of the Shakespeare kind of uh, mythology. There is this great exchange between Polonius, the foppish, you know, assistant to the king and queen and his son Laertes before Laertes was about ready to go off to college, in which Polonius gives him an entire lifetime of advice within the span of 20 lines of this poem. And it's the classic, you know, be friendly to everybody, but not too friendly. Be stylish in the way that you dress, but not too stylish. Give people your opinion, but don't give everybody your opinion. Listen more than you talk. I mean, it's the classic stuff that we've always come to know from fathers and mothers directed at their children right before they're about to leave. But in this case, it was just chock full of Shakespearean advice. But the last kind of line of that, if you separate it away from the Shakespearean kind of seething, oozing, just satire and comedy is this really great clip that kind of drives today's episode with Will Gleason. To thine own self be true. Now, if you divorce that line from the rest of that passage, it's incredible advice. And it's incredible fatherly advice to somebody who's 18 years old, on his or her way out the door, ready to set out into adulthood. Be true to yourself. Live your reality, live your dream. These are all different ways of saying basically the same thing. To thine own self be true. But it's this moment of just heavy weight in the English language and of words carrying so much more meaning than the words themselves would typically be capable of doing. What does it have to do with bike racing? What does it have to do with anything? Where we are here in 2023 is in this moment in time where we get to reflect upon the ideas and thoughts of the past six months of racing, seven months of racing. There's no more obligation to cover who won, what race they won, how the strategy was done. Now we can focus on the ideas that connect 2020 to 2021 to 2022 to 23 to 24 and then on out into the future. And at the most foundational level of sport thought idea is who are we? What is this? Why are we doing it? And when you think about how you can be true to oneself, how you can be present and aware, the most fundamentally important part is to just keep yourself in context. Keep the entire scope of the effort and of the project within the bounds of what is real and within the bounds of what you are really willing to give it. We've been having so many discussions about professionalizing criterium racing, professionalizing American bike racing, and the idea that if you make 
$5,000 a year, you are suddenly a professional in the sport. And we have teams that call themselves X, Y, and Z pro cycling, yet not paying a living wage. It is great that we take care and we show interest and we demand our races and our racers to achieve certain levels of efficiency, certain levels of standard in practice, almost to the point of calling it professionalism, but it's not, it's not there yet. Could it be there in the future? Who knows, but it's not there yet. And even for sports that are truly genuinely professional, there is a time and place for being pro and then for being human. Do not let that human part vanish in exchange for we can only be professional. During our conversation today, Will Gleason um, looks for a quote. It's one thing that's on the top of his mind, but he couldn't quite come up with the, the full quote during the course of the interview. So afterwards, we had a drink and we talked about it. We were able to find it. And it's from Sarah True, who is an athlete of some variety. No clue. She's got a blue check mark on Twitter, so it makes her legit, right? But the quote goes, being an elite athlete and a professional athlete are not always the same. When we use the expressions interchangeably, we set up unrealistic expectations about how easy it is to make a living through sports. Elite is a performance designation. Professional is a financial one. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com, your source for the full bevy. That's right, the full bevy of shows available on the network. Our friends over at the Slow Ride Podcast, for example, have been absolutely crushing it. We almost could say slaying it with their insights into all different types of bike racing, cyclocross, comedy, sports ball, and even criterium racing. They've been at it all. So go check out Tim, Matt, and Spencer. If you want to get your cyclocross fix, the guys at the Media Pit and Cyclocross Radio, Bill, Bodie, and Zach are just keeping it so real when it comes down to talking about what's happening here in the United States, what's happening in Europe, giving you breakdowns of all the biggest races. And then you've got Amanda Nauman doing the Lord's work when it comes to gravel and keeping our focus on the pointy end of the gravel peloton with the Grodio. WideAnglePodium.com, your source for the best in independent cycling media. Go and subscribe and please support this content creator owned effort. So we're going to Ari Shapiro, the living heck out of the ambiance in this. And I'm going to set the stage so you know exactly in your mind's eye what the scene looks like. It's a beautiful autumn weekend in Connecticut, Western Connecticut. Don't know if it counts as New England or not. Huge discussion to be had about that. But it is a beautiful evening in Connecticut. The doors are open. The crickets are out. Everything is just crisp in the air. It's the leaves still have that crunch and you can hear them falling from the trees. You can hear the gentle sway of the reeds of the nearby pond. There's a giant and I mean giant bulldog 
laying on my right foot, breathing deeply, snorting, as one would say, and just so adorably cute, kissy little face staring up at me as I'm trying to do this interview here with Will Gleason. And there's another even larger bulldog who is constantly in need of attention, constantly asking to go out, but no, come back, but no, go outside again, kind of as if it was the bulldog version of a cat. It's just a magical Connecticut evening with Will Gleason. So, Will Gleason, it's fall AF here in Connecticut. Thank you for having me over to your abode and for taking me around all of New York and Connecticut today. Thanks for coming up. I know it was a, a long drive and uh, hopefully it was worth it. And we got to see some nice fall foliage on a great bike ride today. I think we did. I wanted to start our conversation with this quote that I've been searching for in vain because I think it's from The West Wing. And it was like a Josh Lyman situation where he was talking about there comes a point in time in every man's life that he realizes he will never play professional baseball. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been there. You know, I, I played Little League. I was... Can I, real quick, um, are you aware that I love The West Wing? Uh, and it's a top five TV show of all time for me? No, I was okay. unaware of that. It is. So that's very nice to bring up. Wonderful. But it, it, the basic point is that at some point in time in everybody's life, you need to realize that the quest of the six-year-old version of you or the eight-year-old version of you must give way to the reality of life. There's only so many people who will play professional baseball. There are only so many bike racers who will be world tour bike racers. The vast majority of us will never make it to that for a variety of reasons. But we can still enjoy the sport and get everything out of the sport as possible. You are an exceptionally accomplished bike racer, but you will never be signed by a world tour team. Yet you seem to be the most perfectly well-adjusted bike racer that I've run across in the American bike racing peloton. Why are you so comfortable with your place in this sport? I think a lot of it is just a a, a realistic attitude and an understanding of um, kind of the way things shake out. I think it's also the fact that at an early age, I was around people who were very, very talented and I realized that, oh, that's not me. I love riding my bike. I'm, I'm halfway decent at it, but there's not like an insane level. I think I've always kind of been aware of that, but it was never enough to overpower my love of racing and riding my bicycle. When I was 16 years old, I went to a, a USA Cycling uh, junior development camp, kind of the, one of these pathway programs like, hey, you're a good bike racer. Let's go see if you're how good you actually are. And my results were at that camp and the power test and the time trials were decidedly, you know, middle of the field. And it was kind of this harsh reality of like, okay, there are people who are a lot better at this than me. I'm better than some people. Like I'm just decidedly average at this. And that was disappointing at the time as a 16 year old. But at the same time, over the course of that week, I had so much fun because I spent basically a week just riding my bike, talking about bikes, learning from people. And I came out away from that, not thinking, oh, that's disappointing. I'm not going to go to Colorado Springs and take it to the next level. I came out of it thinking, this was really, really fun. I want to come and do more of this. 
did you walk away from it and say, no, they're wrong? I really am the best uh, bike racer that ever existed. I am Will Gleason, the greatest of all time. I will prove you wrong. Or did you accept it and say, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to make my participation in this sport positive. I don't think I thought about it that like deeply at the time. Um, I think there was an element of like, I saw the numbers, like I knew how this worked and I had enough knowledge of, you know, physiological, physiological limits. And like, you know, if you can do X number of power, you can achieve this in the sport that I just kind of, I kind of just accepted it while at the same time thinking like, okay, I'm not going to be making the junior national team. I'm not going to Labita B, but I still learned a lot from the camp and I knew that I had a race the next weekend that I was excited about and I wanted to go do. So it was more of just a, okay, on to the next thing. You've made a career in the sport, not from your own physical power, but because you love bikes, Mm -hmm. you are a Cannondale employee and you are, you know, in charge of, for lack of a better term, creating the next generation of bikes for Cannondale, along with a whole host of engineers and other people, but you're shaping the future. Do you feel that being the bike racer in Cannondale is a good thing for you, as opposed to just being the bike enthusiast, that that edge that you get from racing is helping you do your job as a, you know, a a real life employee? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's, it's, an incredibly value, valuable perspective for someone in my role. Um, so as, as a product manager for Cannondale, the kind of our overarching goal is to be the voice of the rider and to identify uh, what our customers need and how we can meet those needs with product. And it's one thing to, to do the research and talk to riders. Um, and we all certainly do that. But I think that I take it to the next level by actively being in the peloton it's 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 one thing to to talk to a bike racer and get their perspective it's another thing to be you know elbow to elbow banging uh corners with those riders um and being the rider yourself so you never want to let your own perspective you know dictate everything you do but by having your perspective be so deeply ingrained with what your customers are thinking it helps you get a a viewpoint that someone just doing interviews or looking from the outside in maybe won't have completely but are like you leaning over on Clever Martinez and going, hey, that factor there, I just don't think it's cutting it for you. You really should be on, a, you know, a Super 6 or, a, a, you know, an Evo or something like that. Or is it more just, I know how this race is flowing. Can you design or work with a bike that is flowing with the race this way? And also something we'll talk about in a little while can you make the bike look like it belongs in the race? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. It's knowing how how a bike handles in the kind of a performance element. It, it's one thing to think you know how a bike reacts in a corner at you know thirty miles an hour. It's another thing when you're the one making the bike do that. It really gives you a a feeling that you can't you can't just read about. Um, you have to experience it yourself, um, and you combine that with you know what the engineers are telling you, um, what the testing is telling you, and you really get a whole picture of it. And then, yeah, we're not talking to people in the middle of the race being like, hey, what's going on? But having those connections, you know, post-race, um, you know, at the coffee shop, pre-race, like just you just, you, you're you able to get perspectives in a way that 
you know, a product manager walking up to someone as a stranger and saying, let's talk about bikes. Can't quite get. But when you see these people every weekend and you have personal relationships with them, they're going to give you a little bit more. You're able to unlock, you know, that next level of uh, interaction with your customers. You have this personality within bike racing. I don't know if you know this or aware of this. You're an exceptionally approachable person before a race, after a race, sometimes even during the middle of the race, you, you have a, a smile on your face and it, always an easy word. Is that genuine Will Gleason guy from Ohio or is that what you've trained yourself to be or is that just, you know, what's expected of you? No, it, it's, it's completely genuine. And I think the reason I've been able to kind of move up in the bike industry and, and grow in my career is because I'm... I think easy to get along with. And the reason I think I'm easy to get along with is because I, I genuinely love being a part of it all. Bike racing is great. And I believe that bike racing is more than just, you know, the 90 minutes or the three hours, whatever it may be. It's the whole thing. It's, it's on the start line. It's, uh, you know, the debriefs afterwards. It's, you know, riding back home from a crit, you know, with your team. It's, it's all the extra stuff that goes around it. That's what makes bike racing worthwhile to me. So you might as well have fun doing that stuff too. Why immerse yourself so much in this sport? I mean, it's like, I practice law. I go out, I ride my bike during lunchtime. After my bike ride is over, you know, I put the bike away and I go and I do lawyer stuff. And I've got these two different parts of my brain, the bike racing part of my brain and the part that you know I get paid to do and be a lawyer. You have bike racing on all different levels. Doesn't it ever like get to you and you're just like, I can't, I can't, I need to go and go fishing or something just like completely out of left field. No, it sounds like it would like you, you, you do too much of one thing or one type of thing and you'll get bored of it or you'll start to resent it. You know, 15 years working in the bike industry, I mean, and racing that's never that's never happened to me i mean i'm i'm the person who in the morning before a race i'm watching some european bike race on tv i go to the bike race after the bike race i'm returning phone calls or emails related to my bike industry job and i love i love every bit of it it's it's an old cliche if you love it you never work a day in your life and that's kind of always been my motivator behind this i got my first job in a bike shop because I wanted to buy a pair of Altegra pedals and I wanted a discount. And so I applied to get employee pricing and I just kept progressing in the industry because there was always a different fun challenge. So I got to be more involved. I got to, you know, have a greater impact in the cycling community, in the bike brand. And it was always just built around my love of a love of bikes. So I'm going to challenge you here a bit on that because I've heard if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your mm -hmm. life. And I'll, I'll be honest, like, there's not a lot of six-year-olds or seven-year-olds who, you know, go and say, I want to be a patent attorney or I want to be, a, you know, a podiatrist. But there are a lot of adults who are podiatrists and who are patent attorneys who genuinely love their job and what they do. You know, I practice admiralty litigation. I didn't grow up on the ocean, but I've come to love everything about ships and boats. And I go to every single maritime museum in any city that we go to, Madrid, Paris, London, like 
we go to all these because I'm obsessed with boats. I didn't start my job saying I love boats, therefore I'm going to do the boating job. I love boats because of the job that I do. Did you love bikes and then went to work for Cannondale or did working for Cannondale make you love bikes even more? I loved I loved I loved bikes and cycling first and foremost. When I was graduating from college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but the one constant in my life up to that point had been bikes and racing, um, you know, the bike shop culture. And I had a feeling like, okay, this is one thing that has always, you know, given me opportunity, kept me grounded, been really enjoyable. How can I turn that into a career? So at that point, I just was like, I'm going to apply to every single bike company that has an opening. So like my senior year, I was just like, bicycle industry jobs, something popped up, they got a resume for me. And it wasn't, I didn't, I honestly didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I just knew like, this is something I'm interested in and I have no idea what the heck else to do. So let's try this. And how did it go from there? How did you go from like the guy at the shop because he wanted Altegra pedals to somebody who is now designing new or improving bike brands and flagship products at one of the most respected bike companies in the world. I think it was a fair bit of, of, of hard work. I think a lot of it was motivated by, by passion and, and the desire to want to understand bicycles more. So when I started out as a shop kid, changing tires, sweeping floors, like I wanted to know more about the product so I could talk about it more. And from there, I wanted to understand the consumer so that I could figure out what they want and I could get them the right bike to help them enjoy cycling. And then once I saw the ability to, you know, translate or pass on my passion um, to help grow cycling, it was like, it was easy. Cause it was just, everything I did was just to get more people riding bikes. And it was, I love riding bikes. I'm gonna get you to like riding bikes and that's good for everybody. And, that, and that's kind of how I grew in the shop, um, you know, from, a, from the shop kid to a salesperson, to a sales manager. And then I, eventually I just kind of reached a ceiling. The bike shop community and the bike shop career is, is, is difficult where, you know, you can work in a shop your entire life, but at a certain point there's not ability to keep progressing. If you're not gonna, you know, buy the shop or open your own shop, there's really nowhere to go. You can be a, you know, sales manager for your entire life. And I always wanted to do more. Like I wanted to keep progressing. Like there's always been an ambition of me to to grow and do more. I just didn't know what that was. So I thought, okay, I like bikes. I want to do more with bikes. How do I do that? I have to work for a bike company. I was fortunate where when I was looking for a job in the bike industry, Cannondale was hiring inside sales reps in Connecticut. And they basically said like, hey, you know, you don't have any experience with, you know, sales on the, on the business to business level, but you are clearly super knowledgeable about bikes, like your passion comes through, you have excitement, like we can't teach that. We can teach you how to do, you know, dealer support and do sales over the phone, but we can't teach your excitement and passion. So we want to, to harness that and give you an opportunity to learn the rest of it. And then from there, it was just, you know, hard work and, you know, I liked what I was doing. So I worked, I worked really hard at it. And that success led me to, to get, get an outside sales job. Got more experience in that, more bits in the field. It's funny, I, I, I wanted to work in the industry to get out of bike shops because I wanted to do something different. And then I was back in bike shops every single day. And in that moment, I realized I just love being in bike shops. Like I love being connected to this community and to this culture. And in doing that, I was able to keep learning about the product, the people, how that industry is successful. And from there, I was able to build up a, 
a knowledge base and an understanding in you know what what customers are looking for that when Canada was looking for a new product manager, they said, hey, Will knows his stuff. Like he's been doing this for a long time. But beyond that, like he has a passion for it and he is the writer. Um, so he can bring a perspective that no one else can. And I, I think it's an understatement to say that you're immersed in the technology and in what's happening within the community. You are constantly providing me with information from sources that I've never even dreamed. So like, I'll say, well, I was thinking about doing this. And you're like, oh, well, you should also think about doing X, Y, and Z because I don't know if you know this, this is about to happen in the industry. Let's do it. Or this is the direction that the industry is going. So like today on our ride, I was like, I don't know, I'm riding these 40, you know, centimeter bars maybe I should think about 38s or something to that. And you're like, you wouldn't even notice the difference. It's two. Why would you do that? Everybody else is moving narrow. Like, and it was just such a fresh and decisive basis of knowledge that you have. Where does it come from? I mean, are you literally like reading every magazine, press release, zine, if zines are still a thing? Yeah, I think I, I, I start and end my day and also in between just reading everything, whether it's, you know, Escape Collective, Cycling News, Velo News, Cycling Weekly, Road.cc, the list goes on and on. Like, I just, if there's bike racing or cycling equipment content out there, I'm consuming it. And I would be doing that if I didn't work in the bike industry. And, and that's why I think I've been successful in my career because like the nerdiness that I have and like the desire to just consume and understand everything I possibly can is directly applicable in, in my job. Yeah. You read everything. It's all interesting to me. And if you can get more information from more viewpoints and, and then find a way to bring it all together in your head, uh, then you can have uh, hot takes with your friends and argue over, you know, crank lengths and handlebar width and uh, gear ratios. But the, 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 the keeping it all in your head and the processing it part, I mean, that's the next level. It's one thing to consume the information. It's a completely different thing to understand what the information is that you've consumed. And then to formulate the argument is like, that's the PhD level of understanding. And I don't think you appreciate the rarity of the air that you are breathing because you can do all of that and you're doing it all fluently with other intelligent people who are spending way too much time involved in a niche hobby sport. And, you know, we're all just like, nope, Gleason knows exactly what he's talking about here. I mean, do you appreciate that? I don't think I know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I, I think I have a lot of uh, opinions based in evidence, but nothing is, is, is certain. And there's always, you know, counter takes. And I think a lot of it actually comes from growing up in bike shops because a lot of the conversations that we have where people are, you, know, you throw out like, oh, you should do this with your bike for this reason. Someone will counter that. Like those are arguments that shop employees are having all over the place. Um, and that, that was just the, the culture that I grew up in where like I would have an opinion and, you know, Jeremy, the curmudgeoning mechanic who taught me a ton of stuff would just be like, no, you're wrong. And then he would tell me why I'm wrong. And I was felt like I was right, 
but I had to give him a reason for why I felt I was right. So like from an early age, it was like, if you have an opinion, you better be able to back it up with information. Um, no matter what, it could be something as simple as, um, like why someone rides a certain saddle or, you know, what group said is better than the other. Like it's one thing to have a hot take, but like if you can explain why you're correct, then you can win the argument in the back of the bike shop. But I mean like gum walls versus just black tires. Just gum walls always. Clearly it has to be. Uh, but I mean that, that that was a conversation we had today about the appropriateness of gum walls or not on certain color bikes. I want to talk about in a, a part of our sport that has no shortage of hot takes and opinions. And that's criterium racing. Mm-hmm. I think that it's interesting that you and I came together because of criterium racing when you have never been the traditional criterium racer. You don't even race on a traditional criterium racing team. You race on CS Velo, which is a stage racing team in a criterium world. And, you know, it's a little unfair because you guys excel at the Redlands and Gila's and Green Mountains, but those opportunities are fewer and further between. Is the team culture? Well, let me actually ask you this before we talk about the team culture. Let's talk about Will Gleason's culture in bike racing. Did you always gravitate towards these longer, more challenging stage races, or was that just something that you had a greater degree of exposure to, or did you just not like the RG Vargy of Criterion racing? I, I want to start by saying that, like, I. I genuinely love racing my bike in all forms. Like I don't, I don't consider myself a crit racer or a stage racer. I, I just bike racer. I'll do whatever kind of bike racing is presented to me. A lot of the time here in the States, that's, that's crit racing. Um, and I'm, I'm more than happy to, to hop into a crit. Um, I think the reason I gravitate and I enjoy traditional road racing more is because it's what I'm a fan of first and foremost. Like I love watching European bike racing. Um, I love talking about European bike racing. It's like, it's what drew me into the sport. Like just watching, watching racing on, at that point was probably outdoor life network. Um, like that's, that was my first exposure to bike racing. And that's what I always thought. That's what bike racing is. I didn't even know about crits at the time. Um, so that's how my journey in cycling started was that kind of stuff. So that's where I was, my excitement has always, you know, been most drawn to. But growing up in Ohio, we didn't have a lot of like, we didn't have mountainous road races. We had flat, windy circuit races and downtown crits. So while I was drawn into this, you know, grandiose European style of racing, at the end of the day, like I just liked racing. Didn't matter what it was. If I was on my bike with a number on, like I was going to have a good time. So in the U.S., that does lead to a lot of crits, which are super fun. I enjoy them. But when I get a chance to do a big road race, like, I feel like I'm a 12 year old watching racing on TV and I get to be a part of it. And it's just a little bit extra. Did you find CS Velo or did CS Velo find you? It was a serendipitous situation. I was about to move from Connecticut to Pennsylvania to take on an outside sales rep job uh, with Cannondale. And I needed a new bike racing team. Um, I had just won Green Mountain as a Cat 2 when they had a standalone Cat 2 race. And CS Velo was looking to uh, expand their roster and to like do bigger races. And they're kind of taking the step up to the national scene. Um, so I was moving to Pennsylvania, moving to Philly, wanted to find a Philly-based team. They were a Philly-based team that were looking for up-and-coming riders to help develop. Um, 
So I don't remember if I reached out to them first or they reached out to me first, but it was very much a, oh yeah, we were going to, we were looking to talk. Um, and it was just like, cool, right time, right place kind of thing. The team has changed a lot in the last five years that you've been on board. You've had riders like Andrew Janot on the team. Now you've got a rider like Josh Lebo. You've had Ama Ensek, who's, you know, the amateur national road race champion, uh, multi-time collegiate national champion as well. And then you've got, you know, podcast favorite, Alan Schroeder. You have this diverse group of men in the sense of like, They've all come from a different place, Chicago, Southern California, Boise, Ohio, slash Connecticut, slash Pennsylvania, wherever wherever I'm from, wherever Will Gleason is from these days. You know, has it been easy to blend that uniqueness into a cohesive unit that can go and support somebody like Sean Gardner, one of the best bike racers in the United States that nobody knows about? Mm -hmm. And I stole that line from you yeah. from earlier today. Um, first off, now that no one knows about Sean Gardner, it's that nobody knows just how incredibly talented he is. Um, mostly because he won't tell anyone. Um, he's just quietly one of the best climbers in the country. Um, and we love him for that. I think we all, we've all we all done a really nice job gelling together. Thanks in large part to um, the Dodds who run the team. You know, we have, we have two... We, Going back to when I started on the team in 2018, there were two rules. Um, rule number one was show up and wear the kit. Rule number two was no jerks. Everyone they brought onto the elite team, um, they they met in person, they had a conversation with, and they made sure that like this is an upstanding person that we think can bring value to the team. Um, so for me, that was a that was a, like a random coffee shop in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Um, we sat down and we talked, and it was like let's see how this goes. Um, and they don't know that everyone has been on the team, and as a result. Like everyone who's joined has kind of fit the bill for like a solid teammate who wants to support each other, who wants to have a good time. They want to race their bike serious, race their bike hard, but are also just good people, um, like regardless of cycling and their talent. They're just good dudes. This is a domestic elite team. This is not a UCI Continental Pro team, not a World Tour team. This is a domestic elite team and you're still having a sit down conversation with the boss to find out whether or not you pass the is he a jerk or not test. Do you think that's unusual? I, I, don't, I don't know. I've I've only ever been on CS Fellow from the elite side of things, so I'm not entirely sure how other teams uh, do it. And I think the reason I've been on the team so consistently is that I, I, don't, I haven't felt a need to go anywhere else. Um, as I've grown, the team's grown, so I only really have experience with what they've done. I, I would hope that other teams are doing something similar and taking in the, the, the personal element, the intangible element, because uh, that's how I think you build, you know, strong programs, strong communities, um, you know, strong just friendships outside of bike racing. Uh, I think if you're just signing people based off of results um, or power files, you're missing, you know, 90% of who they are as a rider. If you're going to spend six hours in a van with somebody, I hope they're more than just a good set of power numbers and a result sheet. And if I know anything from Alan, it's often way longer than six hours. Yeah. In a van. Six hours is on the short side. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we're talking Redlands to Gila, yeah, it's even longer. And they better also be pretty good at, uh, at conversation. What's been the most random topic, the randomest van topic that you can think of? That's safe for human consumption. Yeah. I once, I once spent 
you know, 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes debating uh, the quality of regional sandwiches uh, with the guys. If there's one thing I, I'm more passionate about than bike racing and and, and bikes, it's uh, it's high quality sandwiches. Okay. Um, so what started as a where should we get lunch turned into a heated debate amongst all of us about where to find the best sandwiches in the country, what kind of sandwiches are the best. Um, and I think if you can kill, you know, the better part of an hour talking about deli meats, like you're in a pretty cohesive group. I'd love to know what regional sandwiches were discussed. Let me take a couple of wild guesses. Um, we've got hoagies, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. connection, obviously. We've got to get, you know, a good old fashioned like Jersey Mike's style sandwich, you know, which covers New Jersey. Yeah. We're being really regionalized here because I, I haven't even brought like a po' boy in. Yeah, getting down south. Um, we are in Connecticut right now, which is the land of chicken parms. So, um, you know, chicken parm, meatball parm. Uh, you know, I like to ask people what their favorite parm wedge is, figure out what their favorite uh, type of Italian sandwich is. Um, tells you a lot about a person. Yeah, that's interesting because I like Subway is not an acceptable answer. If that's your go-to sandwich, then you live a sad existence, and you gotta you gotta look out uh, a <laughs> look out a bit wider. Um, this sandwich conversation actually, I think, came about from Sully's Steamers in Brevard. Uh, it's like a hot steamed bagel sandwich, which grossed out a lot of the guys, but me and Alan were very into, uh, and that led into a weird sandwich conversation. So it's just, I think if you've got a group of people that you can just like go down rabbit holes with, um, that just makes things more fun. So one thing that's kind of hidden beneath that being able to kill time about discussing sandwiches is this concept of taking oneself too seriously or not seriously enough. And I've come to notice in in Criterium Racing, we tend to take everything seriously. Uh, You need to look no further than the, you know, the music that I put with the initial ads that I ran for Criterium Nation, which was like this epic, you know, over the top kind of celebratory thing, you know, like this is the culmination scene in the movie. And that's probably exactly what it was titled on the royalty free music. Criterium racing and road racing, you need to take it seriously because speed is dangerous. But aside from that part of it, do you feel that we take ourselves too seriously? That the image part of it or the I need to look like what a crit racer should look like and I need to have the X, Y, and Z. I don't know if ironic mustaches are even cool anymore for crit racing or if sleeve tattoos have gone by the way. Like, do you feel that we take ourselves too seriously off the bike as well as how serious we should take ourselves on the bike? I think it's totally fine to be serious. Like you said, when you're when you're going through a corner at 30 miles an hour, like that is serious business. Like there are consequences that can happen if you if you get you know too lax with it if you're not serious enough. Um, the training we do is is very serious. Like we're all taking time you know out of our our, our regular lives. We're making sacrifices to perform where we are. Like that is all very serious, and they should be taken seriously. Where things get too serious is when things happen in the race that carry over, you know, out of the race. And, and instead of saying like, Hey, we're, we're just, well, let me, let me jump in and ask you, 
you know, I, I introduced you to Gary Hall Jr., the former swimmer, who said, if I don't beat you in the pool, I can promise you I'll beat you in the parking lot. And Gary Hall Jr. for sure didn't mean it that way because he was a silly, nonsensical human being who was just trying to illustrate the point that, you know, I'm a silly, nonsensical human being. Like, at, when I went to school at University of Mississippi, we, we may not win every football game, but we've never lost a party sort of thing. So there are these theories and thoughts that say, you know what, leave it all out on the field of battle. The park and the parking lot is not the field of battle. And we've seen so much this year and in the last year with things being carried over and outside of the scope of the race not just fights at Salt Lake City, but like intentionally deviating from lines in order to purposefully crash people out or to put people in danger. Like these are outside of the bounds of what I think all of us signed up for. But it also is part of the sports culture or history because these things happened in the 80s and 90s. They just never were on GoPros back then. Do you think that the culture of taking oneself too seriously has led into this part of the sport where it's become more physical and less sport? It, it, it's okay to be to be passionate and to like be in the thick of it and to get emotional around around bike racing. Like if, if someone if someone chops your wheel or, or causes a problem, um, like it's an understanding reaction to come to be to be upset about that. Um, where the, the problem comes is when instead of having a rational conversation and being like, Hey, this is a bike race. Like this is not, you know, life or death. It may feel like life or death in the moment. It's not, um, instead of having a rational conversation with someone and discussing what, what, what went wrong and trying to make sure it doesn't happen again, you know, with this world of social media, um, and, and GoPro footage and, you know, things living on in the comments, there's not a chance for that rational discussion. And it turns into like this just vitriol that is unnecessary. Like at the end of the day, it is a bike race. And yes, people are trying to make careers out of this. They're trying to, to, to do something special with it, but none of it is worth, at least, I mean, you know, for the low payouts that we're seeing at races, none of it is worth, worth like, you know, going at somebody and, and creating just long lasting conflict that ruins relationships or, you know, breaks down, um, just what should be a really welcoming fun time. That is the bike community. Do you think that the social media aspect of it and specifically kind of like the selfie culture has made the sport less about the proverbial name on the front of the jersey and more about the name on the back of the jersey. Uh, it's a basketball reference mm -hmm. or football reference. Like, are you a part of the New England Patriots or are you just Tom Brady? Oh, so I, would, I, would, I wouldn't even look at it in that way. I would say the, the, the social media aspect of it, the selfie aspect of it makes it that it's, it's less about the, the bike race and what happens in the race and more about the image you put forward, um, you know, 
as a as a bike racer influencer um, or whatever you want to want to pretend to be like there are people who you know portray themselves on social media as like bikes are their life and bikes are everything and you know they are posing their their workouts or their power files or you know when they're riding where and they're not doing it you know to to better them to themselves they're doing it to put forth an image that makes everyone else think that they're something which it's fine to do like people get drawn out of that like i understand that but i want to take it back to your your josh lyman quote and realizing when you'll never play in the major leagues okay. and I, I think that's something that more american bike racers especially american bike racers who you know are are, are living the selfie lifestyle and the influencer lifestyle and trying to promote themselves um need to need to understand is that like for most of us in American bike racing, like we're never going to make it to the major leagues. There are, of course, exceptions. I mean, AJ August won in Redlands and now he's signed for Ineos. Like there are, you know, legitimate world tour talents within the American bike racing field. They pop up every couple of years. Um, but for the most part, like those of us who show up to, you know, pro level races in the US every weekend, we've reached the ceiling of what we can achieve. But we continue to act like we are world tour pros or we're entitled to something or we're god's gift to bike riding when we're just we're just we're racing crits and we're racing you know low level stages that we can afford to put on the u.s it's a magical thing and i love it like i love i love local crits i love redlands um gila is this fantastic event like these are all you know beautiful stables of american bike racing but we're not in the major leagues and I think we just kind of check ourselves a little bit and say, we're doing this because we love it, and that's enough. The simple fact is nobody's flying helicopters at Gila and Redlands. We get drones, because there's an amateur drone person who's always interested in videoing a bike race, and a bike race looks incredible. I mean, it is a the Peloton itself is like a living, breathing thing. But when it comes down to it, you know, getting a $30,000 paycheck for racing bikes is not the equivalent of a livable wage in New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Chicago. Like if you were working a job and this was the pinnacle of your career and you were making $30,000, people would probably be asking you what what's going on here? What are you going to do next? I mean, there's a reason that the NFL players are making, you know, minimum salaries in the hundreds of thousands of dollars because they've only got so many shelf life years before they have to go out and start their auto dealership or become a correspondent for ESPN or NBC. Like, do you think that, you know, this sport is in a position where we can say, we're all a bunch of pros? Or is the sport a sport that's saying, we are a bunch of people who are cosplaying and having a damn good time doing it. And we're going to continue to do it as much as we can for as long as we can. But we need to realize that for all of us, other than AJ August, Riley Sheehan, you know, Colby Simmons, and for a small handful of riders who will get that world tour minimum salary of 44,000 euros a year, that we're going to have to go and find something else to do for the most part of our productive lives. 
Hey, yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I think the, the, the best bike racers in the U S are those that, that can really strike a balance between, uh, racing and the rest of their life. Um, cycling in the U S is a problem where we, we glamorize, you know, sacrifice and, um, you know, the riders who are, are, are sleeping on couches and training 20 hours a week and, you know, getting by, but chasing the dream. Like, I, I think it's in, it's due time that we recognize that that's not a sustainable model. Um, and instead we need to be encouraging people to become well-rounded adults who have the ability to perform at a high level. But isn't part of that, like the American dream culture, the, he tried 15 different businesses, all of them failed. And he was on his last dime in a, you know, tenement in Brooklyn. And then he discovered the secret formula to tires, you know, tire rubber. I think that was like Firestone's whole thing. Or the coach from Oregon who created Bortleman, I think is the name, who created Nike. You know, like that's like America's like, how much can you struggle and strive and succeed and because of your failures? But that's not how endurance athletics work. Like you're not going to like, you know, toil in obscurity, riding on free contracts till you're 30. And then all of a sudden you turn <laughs> 31 and you discover something special that makes you, you know, be able to do, you know, six plus watts per kilo for, you know, an hour what really happens is you toil in obscurity, you know, for no money contracts for, for 10 years. And then you realize, Oh, I'm slowing down and you have no alternative. So I'm going to get back to the idea of like taking ourselves too seriously. It's if you spend too long thinking I'm a bike racer, I'm the the best thing this country's ever seen. I'm going to make it. And you stay on that dream for, for too long. You end up, you know, down a dark alley with no way back out, um, or at least a very difficult journey to get to get back to being, you know, a happy, sustainable member uh, of society. How do we make sure that we maintain a healthy balance? I'm 44. I'm not giving up this bike racing dream anytime soon. I now admit that I should be racing masters races, and I will race masters races. You know, you're in your 30s you're in a position where you're just like, okay, I have a successful career with a bike company, but I also love the bike racing part and the bike riding part of my life. How can I make it so that I do care, but I care in the proper amount and for the right reasons? A starting point is to make a clear distinction between professional and elite amateur. Uh, I don't know, this was a tweet I saw years ago. I, I, I wish I knew who, who did it because they deserve credit for it. But it was um, the difference between pro and elite is a professional can basically pay their bills and support their lifestyle. And you know, a, the, the, the sport becomes their full-time job that covers all their expenses and allows them to live comfortably. If you can't do that, like if you're not making a wage to do that, even if you're racing at the highest level in the US, you're not a professional because it's not a profession. Whether you're doing it for free or for five, 10 grand, you know, you're you're still an elite amateur because that activity does not sustain you professionally in as as, as a career or lifestyle. 
But if we can if we can stop calling people who sign a two thousand dollar contract or race for a bike professionals, and we can classify it more appropriately as you are an elite amateur, you have a performance level that is above and beyond most people in the world, and you should be proud of that. But you still need a profession. I think that is a way we can kind of balance it out, where you can be an elite athlete with a full time job, and if we can promote the idea of that balance, I think we will have a more sustainable bike racing culture that will help everyone lead you know more fulfilling happier lives because like you know i i try my best to get 15 hours worth of bike riding in during the week and i bet you that puts me on a level that's above most 44 year old masters bike racers i bet you that's on a level that puts me above most criterium racers in the country you know and i've got the luxury to be able to do that because I've structured my life in a certain way. That being said, I love what I do as a lawyer, as a bike racer. I often get identified at bike racer party, or lawyer parties, excuse me, as the bike racer, Mm -hmm. and at bike racer parties as the lawyer. And these are two halves of a perfectly, I would say, maladjusted personality. I don't think it takes anything away from me or takes anything away from you to admit that I am an elite amateur or I am an amateur bike racer or I'm a middling cat three. I can still go to the race, try damn hard in the race, try damn hard in my training and be content at the end of the day when I don't win the free socks and the sock print. Do you think that people across the Criterium Peloton or the American bike racing Peloton understand that. I don't, I don't, I don't think so because there is still a large majority, at least in the men's Peloton of people who don't have that well-rounded side of things. Like they make all the sacrifices they can for bike racing, you know, to the detriment of their future, their current situation. And, 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 and then, we go in and we and, and we glorify that. Um, that we talk about how you know, oh, if you can get five thousand dollars next year, like you're gonna make it. When it's like, yeah, five thousand dollars is a nice amount of money, but it's not enough money to live. But that becomes the goal is chasing these like small amounts of money, not how can I better balance bike racing with a sustainable career. So we watched a little bit of uh, cyclocross this morning. It's a the Belgian super prestige race. I don't remember which one it was. Super cool. There were a lot of fans. There was a lot of infrastructure that's there. The beauty of Belgium, the Netherlands, you know, uh, northern France, even England, is proximity. And the fact that it is relatively infrastructure-wise stress-free in those areas to be an elite bike racer and continue an elite bike racer career to the point where you might be able to become a professional. The distance between the two furthest apart races that were part of Speed Week was equivalent to every single race that was run in Belgium, the Netherlands, and Northern France. So it was five hours from Spartanburg to Lagrange of driving. And in that distance, you can get, if you center at Antwerp, you can get basically anywhere in the low countries and be home 
at the end of the day. We live in this massive country that's geographically diverse and has so many opportunities and so many resources. But as a bike racer on CS Velo, you have to get on a plane to go to Redlands, which is a five and a half hour flight plus another couple hour drive to get there. Or somebody like Alan needs to drive for 16 hours to get to King's Cross, you know, and to do a race like that. Do you think that there is a way to create this more easily sustained bike racing culture in the United States, which allow could allow us to be more like Belgium and the Netherlands and have a deeper, richer infrastructure which can support riders? Because, like, I can't afford the flight to Tulsa every year. I love to go. It's a great party. But, like, that's not cheap. And the drive, the 13-hour drive from D.C. to St. Louis will start to wear on you after a while. But I still love Gateway. The size of the country and the the geographic spread of races means there's never going to be, you know, an an easy solution to this. There's never going to be a way to make bike racing in the U.S. affordable. Like, uh, just the country's so big, you got to get on planes. If you want to go somewhere, you have to pay a lot of gas money. Um, But we can make it more manageable. Um, and then I mean, this is a topic that's been and probably discussed at length um, all across, uh, you know, team vans and dinner tables where it's like the calendar makes no sense. Like, why are we flying from the West Coast back to the East Coast, um, back to the West Coast? And it's just like, it's a lack of high level calendar planning, whether that's, you know, USAC not getting the events all on the same page or events being unwilling to compromise. There's there's nothing being done to make it simpler, more affordable, and more logical um, for teams to get from race to race. And until until we get some kind of high level planning, it's always going to be people just having to spend more money to get places because if there's a race, people will try and get there regardless of the cost. Let's change subjects here and close out on something that's a little bit more fun and near and dearer to my heart, I know, and I think to your heart, is this blend between function and style. You know, we exist in a sport where it's not at, it's not important enough to be the fastest bike, to be the fastest bike racer, to be the best team. You also have to look the part. You know, like when there's an interview on TV of a bike racer, they need to look the part of the bike racing. They need to, you know, like have the well-fitted cap on and their bike needs to be clean, you know, and, you know, you need to present in a certain way that says, not only did I earn my result physically, but follow along with me because I, my bike, whatever, I've got the image of somebody who's made it to this spot. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about that that dichotomy. What do you think drives that? What part of human nature do you think makes you say, I want to buy a Porsche 911 because not only is it a fast car, but it looks cool too. 
I think in cycling when the margins are so tight and like the the, the difference between you know first place and, and and tenth place can sometimes be you know half a wheel. Just being performance oriented or just just having an edge technology wise, whether it's a bike racer or a bicycle itself, like isn't enough because everyone's everyone's at a high level. Everyone's on great bikes and, and bike racing, be it be it the athletes or the equipment. Um, everyone is at is at such a high level, and the margins are so tight that performance alone is not enough to to stand out. Um, just being uh, the strongest rider or uh, being the fastest bike, the lightest bike, the stiffest bike. When you're talking about ten grams or you're talking about five watts, performance is not enough. Style comes into play because that's what gives something or gives someone a personality. It gives them a, a a style or a vibe that someone else can be attracted to and say, that's my person, that's my bike, that's my brand, whatever it is. It's that X factor that will elevate you above what is really a sea of sameness or marginal differences uh, in performance. Because like we've talked about city-based teams and things like that. One thing that I still don't understand about bike racing as compared to European football, soccer. Chelsea is always going to be Chelsea. Fulham, always going to be Fulham. Man United, all of the, regardless of whose name is on the jersey, who is it Etihad or, you know, is it Qatar? It, you know, who's sponsoring it? It's still Chelsea. In bike racing, it's like you don't know the organization behind it. It is now the organization that's sponsoring it. So ButcherBox is an incredible company. But would that team survive if ButcherBox, the company, pulled its money out and now their image is totally different? We've got teams like Legion. We've got CS Velo. We've got Project Echelon that are trying to change that particular mold where it's like we are something bigger than specialized Argon Ventum, you know, we have created this brand that will survive it. And one of the big things that would make it survivable is merchandise, fandom. What does it take to get somebody to go, not only are you good, but you make me want to be a fan of yours. You, you have a, an image, a style, a je ne sais quoi, to use very bad French, that gets me to say, out of all of the same things presented to me in front of you, I pick that one. You know, like for me is if your team is red and blue, a stronger percentage chance that I'm going to pick it because I'm a Cubs fan. But like, you know, what is it about the image that gets you to say, I love it. How do we harness that? It, it, it's about differentiation because um, from the outside observer, if you know nothing about bike racing and you walk up to a crate in a downtown, um, all you see is a mass of people like on a bike going fast. There's nothing to inform you as a as a you know, new spectator about what makes each team different. Um, so it's really up to the teams to put forth uh, an image and identity that can be used to attract new ride new 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 audience members new fans um who may not know anything about bike racing i'm sure when you were 
when you were a Cubs fan, when you were before you were a Cubs, when you were young, you didn't know a ton about baseball. That you were a young kid, probably, but they were in your city, or you liked the colors, and that was enough to instantly grab you. Well, as my grandfather told me that this was the team that okay. I needed to love, because undoubtedly his father before him told, told him, him this was the team yeah. that he needed to love. It, we don't have that in bike racing no. unless you are a Basque rider and like you come from the Uskadal days. But that, but that love transcends any level of performance. The Cubs have been terrible for a very long time. And still are. Yes, but they still have a rabid fan base that keeps coming back to them. And that's because the results aren't the attraction. It's the city. It's the history. It's, it's the vibe. Uh, in some cases, even the lack of results is, is the attraction because you get to be, you know, the woe is me fan. But there's something beyond just performance that pulls people in and keeps them there through the lean years. And how do we create that within bike racing? How do you create an actual legitimate fan base of people who don't do the sport? You know, like watching that cyclocross race, none of those people were racing in that race. They were all three or four beers into the afternoon. Like, how do we get that within criterion racing? I think it's by showing your riders' personalities. It's letting you know that, like, these aren't just robots who pedal their bikes. They're, they're, they're people, and they have stories to tell. And it makes me think of this year we had a, uh, a new young rider on our team, Kieran, who 20, 21 years old now, and we decided to let him be in charge of the Instagram account. And all of a sudden, we just have gen z slang and weird polls and him taking pictures of uh you know alan eating a bucket of cereal like stuff that's like we would never put on the instagram account like our account used to just be like here's your lineups here's your results like that's it and now we have this kid who has been born on social media and like knows that personality is how you kind of break through the noise and he's posting the most ridiculous stuff and we at first reaction was like take the phone away from kieran he's doing weird things and the minute we had him stop posting, we started getting direct messages being like, what happened? Where was the fun stuff? Like people, people missed the weird stuff because they were, they were engaging with it in a way we hadn't seen before because it was more real and more authentic and less robotic than the normal serious, here's your race results. Here's a picture of us training. You know, it's just, that stuff gets boring. It's the same thing for every team. So if a team can tell a different story, um, or put forth a different face, they have a chance of breaking through the monotony and hopefully bringing in new eyeballs. So the last question, because it sounds almost like we've contradicted ourselves, but I don't think we have. So you've been talking about the team creating the story of the riders. So as opposed to the individual creating his or her own identity through... The, the, the difference there is one is a look behind the curtain and, and is authentic and one is a curated, you know, artificial, I'm trying to put forth a certain image. So I have to do this in a very certain way. The, the fake version is where we're taking ourselves too seriously and trying to be something we're not like instead of, instead of, instead of going out and, you know, posting this, this, very staged photo 
uh, of your bicycle on the side of a mountain, trying to capture this image of you as this, you know, cycling outsider or like lifestyle person. When in reality, we're all just staying, you know, three people to a room in a super eight and, you know, we're on air mattresses. Like that's the stuff that is, that is real and funny and shows people like what American bike racing really is. So how can we move away from the, the manufactured imagery and show like what the sport actually is so that we're not going down this path where we take ourselves too seriously and put too much emphasis on suffering and sacrifice and instead talk about like, we're all just out here having a, having a good time. Yes, we, we take racing serious. We make sacrifices for training. I think at the end of the day, it's important to be open and honest with fans about about what we're doing. And instead of trying to put forth a, 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 a staged presence or you know a manufactured image, let's be realistic about, about what we're doing as bike racers. Um, not only will that better educate the riders on the situation of the sport and the realities of the sport, but it will also give would-be fans a more fun and entertaining view of what we're doing and hopefully draw them in with with real stories not you know things we are making up to make ourselves look good and feel better about what we're doing oh clearly i'm turning the podcast instagram over to kieran because he sounds like he knows what he's doing it it, for the most part yeah there's going to be some misses but that's half the fun like the unpolishedness of it is what draws people in and, and I can hire him in as an intern and not pay him. That sounds like my. No, no, no. We 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 beat it into him that like if you're gonna if you're gonna move up in this sport, like get what's yours. <laughs> so sorry, he's well, gonna negotiate. Well, Will Gleason, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thanks for coming to Connecticut and going for a bike ride. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com for the full lineup of shows there. We are, this was going to be the last episode of the season, but now I'm inspired to do more and just to do random things. So we're going to have more episodes. They're not going to come out on a regular basis, but we've got them lined up. As we get to them and through them, we'll post them. Keep following us on Instagram at Criterium Nation. You'll find out when shows are coming out and some other funny information. Maybe I'll have a good cat picture here or there or a bulldog picture here or there. But whatever. Just come back and join us here again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.